1 Timothy chapters 1 and 2, Paul reminded Timothy of the necessity of sound teaching. In chapter 3, Paul instructed Timothy to demand corporate integrity. In this final section, chapters 4 through 6, Paul tells Timothy that the church must give itself to, to the service of others. That they must deal with false teachers and then here in this section, honor widows and honor pastors, chapter 5, and then honoring our boss and pursuing godliness in chapter 6. In our passage tonight, Paul is concerned with Timothy's duties towards church members and especially towards widows. So he's going to have a, a, a quick observation, verses 1 and 2, about his responsibility to all the church members and then specifically on how the church is to care for widows. Timothy is the direct recipient of Paul's instruction, but in verse 7 he tells Timothy to prescribe these things to the church. So we, want, we don't want to look at this passage and say, well, okay, this is for pastors, this is for Timothy, he's a pastor of the church at Ephesus, so we'll just leave that for pastors. And we, we need to recognize that this was meant to be passed on. For one, it was preserved for us to read, um, inspired by God and is profitable, so it's profitable for all of us. And also, he tells Timothy specifically in verse 7 to prescribe these things to the church. So you need to teach these things to the church. This is not something just for you, Timothy. The whole church needs to apply this um, to the way that we care for one another. So let's look at our text together. First Timothy chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the, younger, uh, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul likens the church to a family here. He does this in verses 1 and 2, um, not so much in, in the next verses, but I think the point is still clear that if we see our church like a family, then we're going to care for it differently than we'll care for, for other people. Not that we don't care about other people, but we, we have a special care for our family, don't we? And, and so um, I would suggest to you that the point of this text is that the family matters, therefore we should treat one another with care. We should treat one another with care. And um, so Paul has this idea, <coughs> I think the idea is, is implicit in verses 1 and 2, that the church is like a family, that you have some older women that you treat as mothers, older men you treat as, as you would or fa your father, at least in the way that you handle some of these issues. But this is not the only place that Paul uses this imagery, right? That the church is a family. We see this in chapter 3, verse 15. Go back there uh, in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, verse 14 says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in 
the household of God. So one of the ways that Paul describes the church or illustrates what the church is like is by using the family as a picture. There are several analogies of the church throughout the New Testament. You have a flock, a building, a body, and each of these images help us to see more about what the the body of Christ is like, what the, the family of Christ is like. But here Paul uses the analogy that seems to to be connected to a family to describe the relationships in the church. And if we take this analogy a little bit farther in the scriptures, it's not hard to see why he might use an analogy like this because we all have God as our Father, right? We are all sons of God, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. And, and as we just saw in chapter 3, we are the household of God. And, and Paul is constantly referring to other Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so for that reason... Um, this analogy of a family is a good one. The importance of this analogy is that it affects the way that we treat one another. When we recognize that we are all family, then we should treat one another with care. And that's what this text is about. We ought to treat the whole body with care, verses 1 and 2, and especially we ought to treat widows with care because they are a part of our family. So first, because the church is a family, we should treat the whole body with general care. And I say general in, in um, contrast to the specific or, or um, more focused care that we're going to have or special care that we're going to have with widows. So general care, verses 1 and 2. There's four categories of people that Paul describes here. Specifically, he's talking to Timothy and how he treats them. And he says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. Now think about what's going on here. What would lead Timothy to sharply rebuke an older man or sharply rebuke anyone? What would lead to a rebuke? Sin, right? A rebuke implies that there's sin going on in an older man. And how do you treat an older man? How do you scold or reprimand an older man? How do you show sharp disapproval to an older man? And and so the question at stake is how do you deal with an older, older man who has sinned? And Paul's prohibition for Timothy is that he cannot sharply rebuke him. Now, does that mean that the older man just gets away with his sin? No, look at the next line. It says, but rather appeal to him as a father. It's the idea of, of appeal is, is to come alongside or to encourage. I mean, would you ever scold or sharply rebuke your biological father? Your answer should be no because that would be dishonoring for you to do that. Instead, you should appeal to him. You know, hey, Dad, I noticed you, you stopped going to church. What's going on? Can we, can we talk about this? I mean, do you remember the kinds of things that you taught me as a young boy and how important it was for us to be a part of the body of Christ? And now, Dad, I, I don't see that happening with you. So instead of, Dad, you need to be in church, you know, like you might... Talk to your son. There's a, there, there ought to be a difference. There ought to be an appeal coming alongside of treating older men in our church like, like we would our fathers. Now there is some debate as to whether this older man is the same word that's, that's translated as elder. Uh, I don't think this is referring to an elder of the church like uh, a pastor of the church because... Um, because in the context, he's talking about these four groups of people, and it makes sense that this would be older older men. Not He wouldn't say, don't sharply rebuke a pastor 
and then treat younger men as brothers and older women and younger women and so on. He, he, he seems to be all in one kind of category here. Um, so that kind of treatment is going to be saved for later. So first, older men. We should treat the older men with general care. Secondly, we should treat younger men with general care. And the, the way that he says that is when you're, treat, you're working with younger men, um, treat them as brothers. The implication is that we're going to have to deal with the sin of younger men in the church as well. And, and if you see these younger men as your family and fellow heirs of the eternal kingdom, then you don't treat them like you're above them, but, but as a brother. And then for older women in verse 2, the same, is, same way that you would treat your father, you treat your mother with honor, right? You treat your mother with honor. And so he says the older women as mothers, treat them, treat them with respect and honor. And then younger women, he adds a little detail here. The younger women as, as sisters, which is parallel to the younger men as brothers, but then he adds this one little detail here at the end, in all purity or in absolute purity is the idea here. Timothy, as the pastor, has a responsibility to care for younger women. And so for Timothy to care for younger women, one of the challenges is that that um, that it could be done in impurity. That that uh, Timothy could um, could uh, could abuse his responsibility as a leader, and uh, certainly we've seen this in lots of different churches, or heard about it, read about it. Um, but but these women are younger, and they need to be treated like you would treat your sister, in all purity, in absolute purity. And so that's what Paul is telling. Timothy, and I think by nature we can draw some implications for the rest of us, for the rest of you as a congregation. You have responsibility, I think, to do something similar with general care. So, if the church is a family, I think it is, uh, then we should treat the whole body with general care. And then, secondly, verses 3 through 8, we should treat widows with special care. Verses 3 through 8, we should treat widows with special care. Paul's basic command is here in verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. So the first thing that he does is he establishes for us the idea that there is a difference between a widow, someone who's lost her husband, and a genuine widow, what he calls a widow indeed, or Maybe we call it a true widow. Um, it's not that the other person, you know, it's not that this one over here hasn't lost her husband. They've all lost their husband. But the ones that you need to honor are the ones who are the genuine widows. So, um, did you ever have have to do syllogisms in high school? All women are human, but not all humans are women, right? You, you use Venn diagrams to try to figure out what, you know, they, they have these weird names usually on the tests. All of A are not B, but all of B are C, and so are, are C a part of A and all that. Um, so, so we need to keep this in mind. All widows have lost their husband, but not all genuine widows in Paul's language, in widows indeed, uh, not, not all of these widows are part of this group. So this, in other words, the the genuine widows are a subcategory of all widows. There are some widows who are not genuine widows. That's the point. 
What does Paul tell Timothy to do with these genuine widows? In verse 3, he says to honor them. Now, how do we honor genuine widows? The answer is in verses 4 through 16. It is by taking care of them. Taking care of them in their time of need. Now, before we take care of them, there are two qualifications for them to make it onto the list of genuine widows. There are two qualifications in our passage, then a third one in, in our passage next week. The first qualification is that they cannot have other family to help them. Second, they must be godly. And third, they must be 60 or over. Okay, that's the qualifications that he put, put there. We need to look at them and see which of those are, are prescriptive. And, and if they all are prescriptive, then we need, to, we need to keep that in mind as we care for widows at our church as well. So, the first qualification for, for our church to care for a genuine widow, again, someone's, let's say someone doesn't meet the category. Let's say someone does have family to care for them. Um, I guess it would be over here, right? If you have some family to care for you or they're not acting completely godly, that doesn't mean we just, well, we're not concerned about you at all and, and we're not going to help you at all. Um, but, but there is a special care that we must have for these who have no family to care for them and who are godly and who are 60 or over. We have a special responsibility to these ladies. So let's, let's look at these two qualifications and we'll look at the third one next week. First one is that a genuine widow must be genuinely poor. A genuine widow must be genuinely poor. Now, this is, before, this is written before the days of pensions and Social Security and survivor benefits. Um, and, and so becoming a widow was a kind of death sentence, wasn't it? I mean, consider Naomi. Obviously, that's Old Testament. But consider Naomi when she lost her husband. What did she say about herself? Stop calling me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter, bitterness, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And I have gone out full. I've come back empty. Ruth chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. She had no hope for herself. And so she said, Ruth, do not connect yourself to me. It is a death sentence. Obviously, she learned something from God and His sovereignty and how He cares for widows. But, but the point is that in that kind of a culture and leading up even into the first century, there wasn't any safety net for a widow when her husband would die. She would not be able to get a job. Just, oh, put my name on the market and, and here we go. I'm going to be able to make some money for myself and live, take care of myself for the rest of my life. It was a death sentence. And the Ephesian church is kind of like a safety net for a widow who had fallen off the tightrope of stability. But before the church would be commissioned to be that safety net, there's another safety net before that. Paul says your family needs to be the first ones, the first safety net. So if you consider like the widow or the, the woman who's married, she's walking on the, the tightrope of life and her husband dies, she falls off, the, the, the first safety net is her own family ought to catch her. If she doesn't have her own family, then there, there's no net there. So then that's where the church catches her. That's where the church takes care of her. Let me show you where I get this. Verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. So here's Paul's point. Descendants of a widow ought to be the first to care for widows. One of the ways that we as children 
make a return on investment to our parents is by caring for them when they're in a time of need. Now, that's not the normal pattern of life, right? Parents are supposed to provide for their children. Parents are, in general, they they leave things for their children to help take care of them after they're gone. But there are cases like this where the husband dies and, and all the wealth is used up and the widow is left to care for herself and she can't. And that's when the, the children need to step in. I mean, after all the parents have done for us as children, the very least that we can do is to care for them in their time of need, right? This is a normal thing that people do, and, and not just Christians. Paul calls this an expression of godliness. That, that this is something that's expected, especially of Christians. Notice what he says there in the middle of the verse. They must first learn to practice piety or godliness. Here's one of the ways that you can practice godliness. Care for your widowed parent or grandparent. So God is pleased with children and grandchildren who care for their widowed parents. Notice the end of the verse there, verse 4. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. One of the ways that you make a return to your parents. See that towards the end of verse 4. You make some return to your parents is by caring for your widowed mother or grandmother. Next week we'll see that there are two more benefits to caring for your widowed family member. Obviously, one is that the widow is cared for, but then the second is that you you unburden the church. You, you, you keep the church from being burdened from having to care for the widow. Look at verse 16. I'll just show you that and then we'll look at it more closely next week. If any woman who is a believer, has dependent widows. Okay, so this is talking about likely a younger younger lady who can care for her widowed mom. Then she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So in order for the church to focus on the genuine widows, then family members, Christian family members, ought to take care of their own widowed family members. Do you see? And in that way we help free up the church to be able to serve and be that kind of final safety net um, that we ought to be. So the implication is that if the widowed church member is without a family to care for her, then she is genuinely poor. So that's why I say it that way. That a genuine widow must be genuinely poor. Let's skip down to verses 7 and 8 because I want to show you how serious it is for you to take care of your widowed parent or grandparent prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, before we can understand this, and I've already tipped my head a little bit to what I think it is, but but we need to ask two main questions. First, in verse 7, what are these things? What things are... is Timothy supposed to prescribe to the rest of the church? What are these things? And then, at the end of verse 7, who are they? So that they may be above reproach. So what are these things, verse 7, and who are they? Let's start by answering the second one because I think that's easier. What are our options based on the context? So that they may be above reproach. What has Paul been talking about? Okay, widows, that's one option. And... Children and grandchildren of widows, right? Those are the two main options. It's either widows or those who care for widows. 
descendants. And there are two reasons why I think that Paul is referring in verse 7 and therefore verse 8 to the descendants of widows. The first reason is grammatical and the second is structural. So first notice the grammatical context. In, in, these, in this paragraph, verses 3 through 8, when Paul talks about genuine widows and their responsibility, does he talk about widows in the singular or the plural? Now, I just said widows, so it sounded like plural, but you, you need to think carefully here because look at how he, he states it in verse 4. But if any widow, singular or plural? Singular. Verse 5. Now she who is a widow, singular or plural? Singular. Verse 6. But she who gives herself the wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Singular or plural? Singular. Okay, so when, she's talk, when he's talking about widows, all the pronouns uh, that would be singular would point to, to widow. That would make sense. But notice how he talks about children and grandchildren. He mentions them once uh, there in verse 4. He talks about them in the plural. So it seems to me that Paul is saying, based on the grammatical context, that, again, he says um, in verse 4, make some return for their parents. Again, that's plural. So it seems to me that in verse 7, that they may be above reproach. is not talking about widows. Otherwise, he might say, so that she might be above reproach. He's not telling widows how to live. He's telling family members how to care for their widows, their widowed family members. So I think he's talking about the descendants of widows here in verses 7 and 8. The second reason I think that he's talking about the descendants of widows is the structural context. And what I mean by that is that this paragraph, verses 3 through 8, is broken down into three main units. Three two-verse units. Each unit is connected by a contrastive word, but notice verse four, verse three, honor widows who are in widows indeed, but if any widow. So verses three and four is one thought. Verse five, now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone uh, in treaties and prayers night and day. Then verse six, but she who gives herself. So verses five and six, another thought. And then verse seven, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, so each forms a logical thought, and so I would suggest to you that verses 7 and 8 go together. And if they do, then that gives us a clue into what Paul is talking about. And so that answers our first question, which was, what are these things in verse 7? Right? I don't think Paul is saying, if a widow does not provide for her own, that wouldn't make sense, would it? If a widow doesn't provide for her own family, she's, worse, she's denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. Well, how could she provide for her own? That's the point of why the church needs to step in. No, he's saying if children and grandchildren do not provide for their own, then what kind of monsters are they? I mean, because even unbelievers do that. I think that's the Paul, Paul's point. At the end of verse 8, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't care for your own family. I mean, even pagans who have less special revelation than us Recognize that when their widowed family, when dad dies, they need to care for their desolate mom. This reminds me of the religious leaders in Mark 7, whom Jesus rebuked, who were constantly trying to get out of obeying the law. Right, And they, they had money that was coming in, and they 
they designated some of their money as Corbin, which means this is designated to God. So mom and dad get in a difficult position. They come to their son and say, you know what, I need some help. And, you know, with, the, with an air of false piety, he says, you know what, I don't have anything. It's all devoted to God. And Jesus says, you set up all these traditions and these special rules for yourself, and at the same time you're avoiding what you're supposed to do, which is to honor your parents. You can't care for them. You handcuff yourself from doing what you're supposed to do because you've marked all your money as devoted to God, but really you don't love God or your parents. So I think that the primary application of this verse, verse 8, is for children and grandchildren of widows. And obviously there's some application for fathers as well. I mean, doesn't this also apply to us as fathers that if we can't provide for our own family, then we have denied the faith and are worse than unbelievers? I mean, what kind of father spends his money on hobbies and recreation and doesn't have enough money to pay for the basic necessities of his family. Not a father father who's thinking straight. Paul says you've denied the faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. Now, now let's be clear that there are exceptions to this. There are people who are genuinely disabled that just simply can't care for their families. I recognize that. I think... Paul recognizes that. Obviously, God does. But but the point is, is if that you if you are an able-bodied person, you ought to be providing for your family. And if you are an able-bodied child or grandchild with a widowed with a widowed mother or grandmother, you ought to be caring for her. So the first requirement for a widow to make it on the list of genuine widows, those who the church has responsibility to care for, is that she must be genuinely Poor. That is, she doesn't have family to care for her. Secondly, she must be genuinely godly. And we'll start into this one this week and we'll see some more of it in our, in our passage for next week as well. Then she must be genuinely godly. And this is in verses 5 and 6. What we need to see here is that the widow must have a reputation for godliness. Verse 5 says, Now she who is a widow indeed, a genuine widow, <clears throat> and who has been left alone shows her desolate state, Right? has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. So what, does a, what is the expression of a godly widow when she comes to a point of desolation? When he, she comes to a point of desperation, what does she do according to verse 5? She night and days relies on God through prayer. Wasn't that what you expect an, a godly person to do? When, when, when they've exhausted all their resources in trying to help themselves, and now they can do nothing, a godly person, a godly widow in this case, turns to God and night and day prays to Him. This is her hope. This is her present state of mind. In the middle of verse 5 says that she has fixed her hope on God. How has she fixed her hope on God? Well, the expression of it is in her genuine and regular continual prayers. And her, her hope in God is also expressed in her personal piety, right? She's not like this one that's described in verse 6 who is given to wanton pleasure, that is sinful pleasure. 
She shows the fruit of a genuine spiritual life. She expresses her hope in God through continual prayers and through and through a pursuit of God's pleasures. So what happens here is that when you have a woman, a wife, who loses her husband, if she has children to care for her, then they ought to step up and care for her. The, 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 the family then becomes kind of like the hands of God. Does God care for widows? Does God have any concern when a widow is, um, is created, so to speak? Absolutely he does. And so the family ought to be the first to step up and to care for, for her. That serve as God's hands. But where are God's hands when the widow doesn't have a family? Does God show his care for her? And, and the fact is, is that for godly widows particularly, God's hands are seen in the care of a widow through the church. That, that again, we, we serve as that second safety net. The first is the family, but if there is no family, then that's us. We're going to help provide st- stability financially and otherwise for her. And the point is, is that no matter what the case is, if you ladies ever get to a point where you lose your husband and you are still in a state where you're pursuing godliness, you can be sure that God will take care of you either through your family or through this church. And so as a church, we ought to take our responsibility in this regard seriously because James says that this is pure religion. Pure and undefiled religion is this, James 1.27. To care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep ourselves unspotted by the world. This is one of the, the things that is at the heart of God is to care for those who are in need. So let's think about three applications and one principle tonight. Number one, as an individual, you must care for yourself. And I would add a little caveat in there, if you're able. As an individual, you must care for yourself. If you are an able-bodied Christian, then you have a responsibility to, as Galatians 6.5 says, carry your own load. One of the things that we ought to do in order to not be a burden to someone else is to take care of our own responsibilities. If we're constantly needing to depend upon other people, then it could be that we're, you know, we're just going through a trial or it could be that, that we're disabled in some way. But we should not constantly be a burden, burden to other. At least in our mindset ought to be, I want to carry my own load. I want to be able to care for myself obviously with the means that God has given me, recognizing that God is the ultimate provider. But, but this ought to be a goal in our life. This is what we train our children to do. You know, mom and dad are not going to be able to care for you forever. You know, there's a time where you're going to leave the nest and you're going to have to pay your own bills. You're going to have to make it your own way. You're going to have your own family and you can't keep relying on us for the rest of your life. Carry your own load. Secondly, as an individual, you must care for your family in need. So here, here's one of the signs of maturity for a Christian is that you want to care for yourself, not be a burden to others, but also you want to help bear the load of someone else who's, who's weak, who's stumbling. And, and there are Christians in genuine need 
And, and when they get to that place, particularly we're talking about widows here, they ought to first be able to rely on their Christian family to care for them. And so that means if, if you have a Christian family member who's in, who has genuine need right now, you, you ought to think about what you, ought, you can do to provide for them. Not just a one-time gift, hope, hope this sets you on your way, but, but what could you do to help carry their load, to help bear their burden, Galatians 6.2. Because if you are a Christian, then, then this will be part of your disposition. You want to care for your, especially your own household, your own family. And those who don't are, have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. So those are the implications or applications for the individuals. Then for the church, we have a responsibility to care for destitute believers. So as each of us take on our responsibility to care for our own family members, then that frees up the church to be able to care for those with genuine needs. We might say, well, wait a second. What's the difference between this need and that need? That person you know, has, is as poor as this person. Why, why are you choosing? And the fact is that, that there are requirements, apparently, according to this passage, that there are requirements, those who are genuine genuinely need genuinely ought to be uh, taking up the care and and the concern of the church and and so we as a church ought to be looking out for those who have genuine need those who have no family to care for them because those who have no family to care for them ought to be cared for by the church if they're in a place of genuine desolation Finally, a principle. Our church's primary focus of care ought to be on our own people. Our church's primary focus of care ought to be on our own people. And this sounds selfish. But I think it's derived from, from the scriptures. The social gospel has taken root in our sub-Christian culture. We feel good when we open up a food bank to the public or when we hand some money to the beggar on the street or when we clean a public park. And there may be places for that. That is, with regard to the church, I'm not opposed to any of those things. But, but can I say to you that, that the primary focus of our church's personal care must be on our own people. That the true expression of Christian love is not in how many wells that we have dug in Africa. Or how many bellies that we filled over at the homeless shelter. But rather, the, the genuine best expression of our Christian love is in how we show care for the people of this church. I think these social activities that I mentioned, you know, cleaning parks and, and feeding people and so on, they have some merit. And I, I believe, I don't want to demonize churches just whoever does this, they've, they've denied the faith. I'm not saying that at all. I think that when they engage in those things, they're doing it with genuine motives. They want to reach the lost. They, they want to express their love to the, the surrounding culture. And maybe we have some to learn from them. And I recognize also that, you know, you know if we avoid this extreme of, like, well, all of our time is going to be spent on people outside of our church and we never care about people inside of our church, the other extreme is... The only thing we care about is people inside of our church. 
And so we never even give a thought to anyone outside of our church. So let's say there's a huge catastrophe in our area and they need a place to stay. And we're like, well, no, too bad. We have to save our church for our church building for other purposes. We can have the wrong mindset that, you know, if you're not a member of a church, we don't really care about you. I'll address that in a minute. But my point is that there should be a special concern. I think there is a biblical responsibility for us to have special care for our own people. Consider the, the, the load of scriptures. I'm just going to quote for you a couple of them that point to our responsibility to our own people. Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love the unbelieving poor. Is that what he said? No, if you love one another, John 13:35. Here's how they're going to know. So again, these social gospel type churches are the ones who we want to make sure that everybody knows that we have love for Christ and that we are his disciples. And so we're going to feed them and clothe them and clean their parks. Jesus says, that's not how they know that you're my disciples. It's when you show love to each other. 1 John 3:17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees a poor Asian child in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Is that what it says? No. Whoever has the world's deeds and sees his brother in need, his, his Christian brother or sister in Christ, there's a special bond that we have because we are all members of one family. We all have God as our Father. How about 1 John 4.20? How can you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your pagan co-worker whom you have seen? Is that what it says? No. I'm not telling you to hate your co-worker, but, but John's point is that genuine Christian love is expressed, and frankly, genuine love for God is expressed not in how you love unbelievers, but in how you love your fellow church members. Or to use another metaphor other than the family, 1 Corinthians 12:26, we are all members of one body. So, when one homeless person suffers, we all suffer. No. Paul's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ and he's saying when one of us suffers, we all suffer. We have this connection through Christ. Now, I'm not telling you to reject anyone who's not a member of our church. Reject your neighbor when he asks you to help work on his car or, you know, I can't make yourself available for for someone when they have a need. I'm not telling you that you can't visit your coworker in the hospital because, you know, there's work day this Saturday and so my church is more important than you, so too bad for you. But do you know God has given us some instruction as to how to handle this kind of difficulty of balancing how we treat people outside of our church and how we treat people inside of our church. Listen to Galatians 6.10. Do good to all people, but especially to those who are of what? The household of faith. So how do we know? How do we know where to draw the line? So he's not saying do bad to people who are not of the household of faith. He's saying do good to them but especially you ought to show love for those who are part of your church. You especially ought to have concern for the widows who are a part of your church. So how do we know? How do we know where to draw the line between helping unbelievers and helping church members? 
And the, the general answer is, maybe generic answer is discernment. We need discernment, right? But more specifically it is, back to our first point, think of the church like your family. How do you know where to draw the line between helping non-family members and family members? How do you know where to draw the line? And the answer is, in your disposition, isn't it? If you have a disposition to help your family and to be there for your family, then there will be occasions where you actually say no to non-family members, right? Where you say, you know what? I have responsibility to my wife, my children, and I would like to help you. There's only a limited amount of time in the day, and I have a primary responsibility to them. You're not being mean, but you, but you, you recognize that there is discernment that goes into that, but, but you have a general disposition that I want to help my family. And, and what I'm saying is, if you think of the church like the family and you have that kind of disposition, then that will help you in making those choices, right? Not that I can't help unbelievers ever. I can't ever give my time to them. But it is I have a general disposition that I'm going to be there for my church. I'm going to help them when they are in need. This church is my family, and I want to use every opportunity I can to help. We ought to pay close attention to our, our mercy radars so that we can see where we need to step up and help someone who has a genuine need. And particularly in this passage, it is in how we have general care in our relation with one another, verses 1 and 2, and then how we show special care to those who are especially destitute those who have lost a husband particularly and who have no means to care for themselves. That's when the church steps up and says, listen, we know you don't have family, but God has made us part of your family and we are here to be the hands of God to help you in your time of need. Let's pray. Father, would you soften our hearts to the needs around us. How easy is it for us to have a, a kind of a tunnel vision in life that you know we have our own things that are going on and, and our own pursuits and recreations and, and uh, we just don't have time to, to think about other people and, and care for them. And Sometimes we get our priorities out of balance and, um, and so we don't make time. And so we pray that, that you would help us to, to prioritize properly uh, this church and, and our, particularly our own families as well. As, as Christians of all people, we ought to be good caring for those in our family who have genuine need so that they can be cared for, that, that they can see your sovereign care for them. That We kind of serve like an answer to their prayers. If a widow is night and day, giving entreaties and continual prayers to you, then when we come to meet the need that they're asking about, we serve as answers to their prayer. And, and we want to be like that as family and also as, as a church when they don't have family. Help us to know how to discern the various issues um, that, that can arise in a culture that's a little bit different than theirs, but, but a lot of the same principles apply. And so we pray that you'd help us to think carefully about our, our church's responsibility to care for the widows that we have in our church and to be ready to care for the 
the widows that we will have in our church. We don't know what the future holds, but but Lord, we do know that, that you are in control of all things and that that uh, we can trust in you and um, we're thankful that you have given us this church as an extension of our family or as another kind of family, a different father, a greater father really. Have this spiritual connection and a, a way to express love to one another and we want to do that. Help us to be godly and to to love one another as brothers and sisters love each other. Pray for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.